0: Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by the LitBreaker Ad Network. LitBreaker is an ad network for culture vultures, for people who like art, books, music, movies, photography, you name it. Go to LitBreaker.com. If you want to advertise on a variety of great culture sites all at once, sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, The Believer, the list goes on. You can advertise on them in bulk or piecemeal. You can pick the sites you want to advertise on one by one. It's really easy to use, and it's really effective. Check out litbreaker.com for more information. Litbreaker, it's an ad network for art people go and advertise on it oh my god you
1: are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common
0: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful <laughs> jake
1: stated what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there
0: and now here's your host Brad Listy, just one person at just one time. Right? Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two human beings in different locations. This is many human beings listening to two human beings. How are you? I'm Brad Listy uh, here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. My guest today is Sarah McCary. She is the author of several uh, books, several works of fiction, including the novels All Our Pretty Songs and Dirty Wings. Uh, Her forthcoming title is called About a Girl. It's due out in the summer of uh, next year, summer 2015, from, uh, I believe, St. Martin's Griffin. She is uh, also, Sarah is also the editor and publisher of a chapbook series called Guillotine. And uh, she has a blog, a popular blog, called The Rejectionist. So, uh, very nice to have her here. She and I are going to be talking in just a bit. Uh, So... Last night uh, I, was, I was getting ready to put my daughter to bed and I was flicking around on my phone and I saw in my Twitter feed that Derek Jeter, the uh, New York Yankee, was about to have his last at bat, uh, you know, at Yankee Stadium. And, you know, I'm not even a huge baseball fan. I don't give a shit about the Yankees <laughs> or Derek Jeter. But I do like sports from the perspective of a human drama and from the perspective of reality television. I often argue that sports are the best reality television that there is. You're seeing somebody in real time, like trying to execute, trying to live out their dream, everything on the line. So I see this in my Twitter feed. I can't resist. I go over to the uh, game online, and I'm sitting there with my phone in my hand watching Derek Jeter have his last at bat in the bottom of the ninth at Yankee Stadium after 20 years of playing uh, shortstop for the Yankees. And uh, he gets the game-winning hit. He does it. It was awesome. And, I, you know, I got choked up. <laughs> I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't help it. Watching this guy have his moment. And, you know, he's had lots of moments. That's sort of his MO for those of you who aren't sports fans. This is a guy who, when uh, he needs to be good, he's often good. He, he meets the moment. In uh, the parlance of sports, I believe he, you know, we would call this, you know, He's clutch. So it got me thinking about him and his life because we're basically the same age. He has been a famous all-star baseball player in the city of New York for the past 20 years. Uh, while I have not. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't realize this, but the girl, like some of the girls he's dated, he's been, you know, he's a serial dater of beautiful women. Some of his girlfriends over the past 20 years include Jessica Beale, Jessica Alba, Scarlett Johansson, Tyra Banks, Minka Kelly, Vanessa Manillo, Adriana Lima. And uh, now this, uh, 24 year old supermodel named Hannah Davis. And he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm guessing, I mean, the guy's worth a a fortune and for the rest of his life, he'll never pay for a, a dinner in New York city. So it's just, you know, It got me thinking. His experience of of existence is completely different than mine. (laughs) Completely different than most people's. Like, what's it like to be really fucking good at something? What's it like to have it that easy? My God. And you know, I get it. He has some suffering. He's a human being. Who knows what goes on behind closed doors, but come on. He's got it pretty good. (laughs) What is his perspective? I want to get him on this show. Pick his brain. So, you know, that happened. And then I've been rereading this morning this essay by Clay Shirky. I don't know if you guys know Clay Shirky. He's a really smart guy. Always has interesting things to say about things like uh, the Internet culture, etc. And uh, he wrote an essay for Medium about publishing and Amazon and that whole argument. And he kind of turned the popular argument on its ear. Is that a phrase? You turn it on its ear? He turned it on its head. He flipped it upside down. You know what I'm saying. And, uh, you know, uh, like there's a lot of things that he says that feel really compelling. And as usual, when it comes to uh, issues like this, I don't know how to feel. I'm easily persuaded by either argument if it is uh, passionately and persuasively argued. So a few, you know, a couple of months ago, whenever that big group of authors took out that big full page ad in the New York times, uh, I was incensed. I was ready to march on Amazon headquarters. I felt like Amazon was an evil empire and you know, so on and so forth. And I think this is the popular sentiment among writers, though. I think a lot of writers who express this sentiment don't know anything about <laughs> what's actually going on. It just seems like a good thing to do to you know bitch about a corporation and then Clay Shirky you know really digs in and he makes me rethink the whole thing so I'm going to just read some quotes rather than try to paraphrase this because if I do there's a good chance that I could fuck it up he says quote many of the people uh, rightly enraged at Amazon's mistreatment of customers don't understand how their complaint implicates the traditional model of publishing and selling as well which doesn't get as much airtime, you know, uh, he says some of the strongest critic uh, criticism of Amazon comes from authors most closely aligned with the prestigious parts of the old system, which seems to be the case. Like if you're, you know, a lot of these people who are taking out this ad uh, seem to be flourishing in the old system. Why would you want it to go away? Even though it's uh, shitty for most people, <laughs> you know, everybody's sort of protecting their, their turf in life. I said something on Twitter the other day that I think I've been thinking about a lot lately with it, which is that uh, rare is the human being who has leverage over another human being and doesn't exercise it. Like, you know, you're the boss of a company. You know that the person who's working for you will work for eight bucks an hour, even though you could afford to pay them 15, you pay them eight because you have that leverage and you know, they need that job and they don't have any better options. That's shitty. That's the way it is. And I think what we need are we need people uh, out there who are good enough to not exercise leverage when it's not the right thing to do. But good luck, you know, and, and enough of this. Uh, well, that's just the market. Fuck that. Pay people a living wage. Stop it. <laughs> um. So what else does Clay Shirky say? He says, uh, richer people in fancier cities have nicer things. Surprise. But given recent technology, those barriers could be lowered. Demand can now create supply in the form of ebooks and print-on-demand. This turns books into a different sort of commodity. No book need ever be out of stock or out of print anywhere in the world. It used to be that if you were okay with people in Podunk having inferior access to books than people in Brooklyn, you were just a realist about the difficulties of making and shipping physical stuff. Now, if you're okay with that, you're kind of an asshole. Which is an extension of the, uh, of the fact that, you know, like now with Amazon, you can just order a book online and it shows up at your door. Or you can have a Kindle and you can live in the middle of South Dakota and, you know, you can have access to anything, even if there's not a bookstore anywhere near your house which has its positives, right? So Shirky continues. The traditional industry belief, if you don't live in a big city and have a lot of money, you deserve second-class access to books, is being challenged by a company trying to say, quote, if you have 10 bucks, there's not a book in the world you can't read, end quote. If the current industry can't keep their prices high while competing with instant distribution of a vastly expanded literature, and that seems to be their only assertion worth taking at face value, then it's time for them to figure out how to make a business out of improved access. And, you know, that statement seems convincing to me. I've often said this. It's hard for me to argue, like, for Amazon's, like, you know, really, like, muscular corporate tactics, which seems sort of dickish, you know, and monopolistic and just, like, hyper-aggressive. Everything that's bad about human beings. But at the same time... The big five publishers sat on their hands. They got outfoxed. They weren't on it. And they want to preserve a system that just isn't in sync. You know? Or it can seem that way. And then Shirky kind of rips people out there in the elite, in the media elite, who pose questions and concerns about the fate of, quote, books which is really a way of masking concern for the fate of the insiders. That seems true too, or at least partially true. They're not concerned about but like the physical book object. They're concerned about like what's going to happen to them and their money. <laughs> and you know, everyone to a degree has that concern, but you know, you might as well just come out and be more uh, explicit about what you're really worried about rather than trying to like hold up this banner of like I'm defending the literature. You know. Shirky then outs himself as a member of the uh, media elite and a beneficiary of the older system. He says, I say this as a beneficiary of that older system. I earn hundreds of thousands of dollars in advances. I earned hundreds of thousands of dollars in advances for my last two books to say nothing of the opportunities those books opened up. So the system has worked admirably well for me. However, I am a WASP, an Ivy League graduate, a tenured professor and a member of... Of the Sansaire-swilling East Coast media elite. <laughs> of course the existing system works well for me. It's run by people like me, for people like me. Despite my benefiting from it, I am unwilling to pretend that this system is beneficial for readers and for writers who lack my privilege. I'd always aspired to be a traitor to my class, though I hoped, though I had hoped it would be for something a bit more momentous than retail book pricing. But treason is as treason does, so here goes. The reason my fellow elites hate people, hate the people who run Amazon, is that they refuse to flatter our pretensions. In my tribe, this is a crime more heinous, uh, more heinous even, than eating one's salad with one's dessert fork. <laughs> so there you have it. Read the, re- you know, read the essay at, at medium.com. Clay Shirky. Even if you don't agree with it, it'll make you think. And frankly, we need like bracing discussions on both sides of the line rather than like going on some huge Amazonian witch hunt, you know, I'm not saying Amazon doesn't deserve its licks, but we have to think more holistically. We're going to actually get down to the bottom of things, I think. So one, one letter, one quick letter, uh, and then, you know, from a listener and then we'll get going with today's program. So I got a, uh, an email from a listener named Stefan. He says, Hi, Brad. It's been a while since I've written, but I've been listening. The small, dark, windowless basement cafeteria where I eat lunch. That's where he listens. Uh, somehow it's the perfect theater for your show. <laughs> uh, so episode 302, Steve Allman. What a perfect way to kick off football season with all its horrors, contradictions, and glories. I think Almond maybe took it a little too far at times, but his points were dead on, and yet I continue to watch. As do I. Not as much as I used to, but I still can't kick. Episode uh, 300, Amy Bender. Excellent choice for the 300th episode. She was a delight. Very personable. Very giving. Episode 299, Dan Sean. One of the best guests you've had. He seemed so comfortable and willing to share. Great insight on his writing process, his life, the death of his wife. He was open and funny. Great get. Episode 298, Stuart Dybbuk. I always thought it was pronounced Dybeck rather than Dybbuk. He's a wonderful writer, but boy, what a gas bag. He didn't let you get a word in edgewise, and instead got, got going on and on with his stories, spoken with a Chicago accent. I got the sense that it wouldn't really have mattered who was interviewing or what questions were asked. He would have just rambled on in the same way. Ouch. So, you know. Uh, I was thrilled to have Stewart on. I got to defend him a little bit. He was uh, totally kind. And you know, t- it should be said too, not everybody is great in the uh phone interview format. Uh, I thought he was fine, but you know, it's, it's it's not for everybody maybe. And uh you know, he is a wonderful writer. So uh, Stefan goes on to say episode 293 Guillaume Morissette more so than I've ever heard you. You seemed irritated with him. I think you were sick or going on a trip or something, but you really didn't want to put up with his shit. And I think you were annoyed that he was making all this money at a video game company, but acting like that was such a drag for him. Question mark. And uh, here I would, uh, I would contradict again. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed talking to Guillaume. I think what I was worried about was just that he wasn't in touch with his family. That makes me anxious. I think it's because I'm a parent. I'm worried about my daughter one day (laughs) completely disconnecting, you know, and I just thought, you know, I I think there are are situations and circumstances where that's called for, but it's tough. You can't disconnect, man. You're carrying that DNA. You're always connected. So maybe that was, you know, what was making me edgy, but Guillaume was a, a delight and he was totally forthcoming, which is all I can ever ask for. So uh, Stefan continues. Anyway, thanks for your work. The show is going really good. Sorry. You got ripped by that book slut writer. That was uncomfortable. Best Stefan. So he was talking about the uh, criticism I took from the uh, book slut editor a while back, which has been well-documented on this program in previous episodes. So thanks Stefan for writing. If you guys out there want to email me, the address is letters at other I guessed once again, is Sarah McCary. Her books include All Our Pretty Songs, Dirty Wings, and the forthcoming About a Girl. Her blog is called The Rejectionist, and her indie press is called Guillotine. Here she is, folks. This is my conversation with Sarah McCary. I think it was, well,
1: I think it, you it it's funny when I told people that I was, um, moving out here, a number of people said, oh, you seem like someone who would do so well in New York, and I don't think it was actually a compliment, <laughs> but um, I think there is something about, uh, you know, and obviously not everyone who comes to New York comes here for that. I mean, there's this great romantic myth of New York and, and all of the, and that sort of attendant uh, obnoxiousness, but I do think it's it's fair to say that a lot of people come here come here specifically because they want to be very good at what they do um, especially in the arts and that's still true um you know i mean obviously it's that's been true for a long time but it's still true now even even though the city is becoming more difficult um to to sort of live in um and so it's it's Really normal here to nobody looks at you twice if you say, um, you know, I'm the most brilliant person in the room. Or, or what, I mean, that's not what I do, but um, maybe <laughs> oh, I should, come, on, but, uh, come on. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, that,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> might be a good idea. You might
0: need to change your strategy.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it does actually seem to work for people here, which is really amazing. <laughs> um, it's a city, it's definitely a place where you can kind of really let it all um, hang out for better or for worse, and people are not going to um, be alarmed. Because they're used to it, so that was nice. It was really freeing to be around people who are very driven um, and very focused, and for whom it's not weird to say, you know, I want to, I want to be a famous writer, and I want to be quite good at what I do. Um, I would even like to make money uh, as a writer. <laughs> <Unbelievable>. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. That's your problem. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that one's still on the to-do list, but uh, <laughs> but I think it's it's not. It is sort of shameful. Um, I found this to be true a lot in the West Coast in general. I've I've never lived in California, but in Washington and in Oregon where I lived, it's sort of um, it seems it seems like sort of distasteful or embarrassing to to have that kind of naked ambition.
0: Well, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like just speaking for Los Angeles because that's where I am. Like, what I sort of find, especially among the artistic class, is that in Los Angeles, like. Like the badge, like where you know you've made it, is when you can start to show up to functions like totally underdressed, or that's so funny. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> yeah, that's, I, so I, I feel like that's sort of like the. I mean, not that people are ever overdressed really in Los Angeles because that's just the way totally. things are here. But yeah. it's like it's like you show up to like some nice dinner and it's like the dude who just looks like a bum is like a billionaire and like he's like yeah, right. fuck you, I'm a billionaire and I can dress right. whatever over the fuck I want. And like that's sort of like. I think that's sort of a thing, you know, and it's like an anti- yeah. anti-conformity, and I'm not going to adhere to your rules because I don't have to, and I've graduated from that or something. But um, I'm always sort of like, ooh, look at that guy. He looks terrible. He must have done something. <laughs> <You know>?
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. right. It either like, like a serial killer is wondering <laughs> either you be. It could be
0: either. That's when you know. It could be both. Yes,
1: yeah. when you are
0: indistinguishable from like a homicidal street person, right. you have made it in Los Angeles. Right. So, but I guess in New York, maybe there's a little bit less of that. I feel like, you know, New York dresses itself up a little bit more. It's a different culture.
1: Yeah, it's a really different culture, which I enjoy a lot. I mean, I really, um, I I love being around people who take fashions. I mean, people just take their whole thing very seriously here. Um, and sometimes that's kind of comical too, but it can also be really inspiring and wonderful to be around people who are just going to make the most amazing presentation out of themselves and their lives and and their work, and um, I find that very
0: well. Especially, coming, uh, especially inspiring. Coming, well, yeah, and especially coming from like the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the which land was, of
1: Chivas and <laughs> yeah, me. I was going to say how many, like how many
0: you're like get to get like uh, how many toe rings do you have to see before you're finally like okay, right. I'm, I'm going to Brooklyn. Um, but you know, and I
1: definitely. I speak of—I mean—I speak of the West Coast with absolute love, and if anyone—you know—if anyone else disparages the West Coast to me, I will like—you know—I'll <laughs> you know, go to—I'll go to the map. But it was—it uh, um, it is very different here in ways that are both very challenging and also very, um, I think, inspiring, and that really pushed you. I mean, New York is sort of—it's a—it's a really magical place in a lot of ways, but it's also—you know—it's—it's it's quite hard to live here. It's very expensive to live here. Um, in many ways, it's extremely miserable to live here. So you really have to want to be here. You either have to be unable to afford to leave or you have to really want to be here. Right. And um, and I think that inspires a certain culture um, in a city that is very different than anywhere else I've ever been.
0: Yeah, it's the cost of living is crazy. I don't know, like, when's it going to end? Like, a way- is it ever going to moderate itself? Do you know what I'm saying? It feels like it's just going up and up and up and up and, like, the gulf is just getting wider and wider and wider and wider and it's like at some point something's got to give
1: right well and i think i mean living in new york is also a lot like living inside an allegory of like terminal capitalism you know where you see people (laughs) you're 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 literally like walking down the street next to people who have just unfathomable amounts i mean sometimes they have to get out of their cars you know if they have unfathomable amounts of money and at the same time yeah the, the economic disparity here is is just staggering and so you really see it kind of playing out in front of you in in the sort of accelerated um time that is a little bit <laughs> terrifying and, and depressing but yeah but it is uh, it does seem pretty much to represent sort of capitalism and it at its at its worst <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever do you ever like
0: look at it you ever see like a rich person getting out of their like you know their town car their limo or whatever it is you know someone walking down the street in like inexpensive clothes or whatever do you ever look at somebody who is obviously fabulously wealthy and think to yourself just give your fucking money away and give it to me like do you ever have <laughs> oh all the, time. all the time why do you have oh, my so- God,
1: all the time. <laughs> yeah just like come on you got
0: billions of dollars or millions of dollars
1: all the time yeah right yeah, especially because I think when you're in when when you're in you know another thing about living on the West Coast is obviously there are very wealthy people out there, but you don't you don't see them. They are like on top of you know they're literally on top of mountains or, or isolated behind these wherever. Like you don't have any kind of interaction with them, so you don't you don't really recognize that. But in New York, you 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 are working for them, or you're going to parties where they are, or you have all of these. Um, you're in proximity to people with that kind of money in a very different way. And you realize very quickly that, um, some of them are, are very wonderful people, but most of them, you know, don't not necessarily, um, deserve to have that money any more than say I do or, or yeah, anyone else. But it, it, it can be very, um, Absolutely. Sometimes I'll just be like, just give, just give me a little. Come just on, <laughs> hundred thousand dollars. You won't even miss it. Yeah, you won't even
0: know it's gone. You like sneeze, and, and we'll
1: go, I'll make it go so far. Yes,
0: <laughs> Could live on it for years. Years, years. I have yeah. this. I have this fantasy of like, uh, you know, the fabulously well-to-do coming to their senses and realizing that, like, if you just start giving your money away indiscriminately, uh, it, you know, most of it will get spent wisely. Like they always. There's always this thing like where it's like no, you don't want it to be wasted. It's almost like they treat uh, charity like uh, they want to get return on their investment, which to a degree I can understand, but I also feel like there's something dehumanizing about that.
1: Um, oh, for sure. So yeah. It's,
0: it's like, for man, sure. come on, there are people in the, like there are people right on your block who could really, you could make somebody's year, you know, just with yes. the smallest little amount. But anyhow.
1: Well, and there's all those studies that, yeah, that show that if you, um, if you just give people enough, money, people who don't have money. If you just like, give them enough money, they make really solid decisions with it. You know, it's not like they all blow it on um,
0: on of, things that like, they don't need. Crack, or, yeah, crack or whatever. They
1: go, they buy groceries, or they <laughs> buy houses, or they buy like, right.
0: So, yeah. okay, so you get to New York, you've been living in the Pacific Northwest, you're ready for a change, you want to get you want to move away from home, essentially, you want to get out of familiar territory. And then also, you're right. you coming out as, as a, you know, someone who has uh, literary ambitions. <laughs> right. So you arrive in Brooklyn and Greenpoint. And like, what was the transition like, you know, I, I feel like you make a move like that, there's a lot of excitement that goes into it, you know, you're in this new place, and New York has all that energy that you can't help but feel when you're there. So like what was the honeymoon period like or was there one?
1: Oh my god. So I moved to New York in um August of two thousand and eight, which you may remember as being about two weeks before the entire economy collapsed. <laughs> right. Which um is probably I mean it's, I'm sure it's not the worst time to move to New York in the history of ever, but it was um it was pretty bad. <laughs> so so my welcome to the city, um I feel like everyone, nearly everyone I know who moves here has some amazingly apocalyptic story of how awful their first year was in New York, and it's kind of, it's just sort of a rite of passage that you go through. Um So it was pretty dismal. I couldn't get a job. I had no savings. Um, I finally, I was interviewing, and, and I interviewed at literally every publisher in New York, sometimes several times. Um And at this point, I was I think like 27 or 28, and there were like you know this bitch is not going to make the coffee and so um they <laughs> so I didn't get hired anywhere and um finally I got a job as a barista and I did that for about a year and I was like interning for people um I was I did so I worked in a letterpress shop for a while I was, I was working like 14 different jobs um for for well actually I still do that but they're better jobs now but um so it was really difficult. Um, did you ever think? And, about, did you ever think
0: about bailing? Were you ever like, okay?
1: Oh, all the time. I, I mean, literally, if I had had enough money to actually leave New York physically, I would have been gone. No, no question. Within that first year, um, although there was, I think, some pride that kept me going too, because you know, then I would have had to go back with my tail between my legs, and be like I didn't make it. <laughs> right. um, which seemed... you get you, back, you
0: get back in the drum circle in Portland. You're like, okay, guys. Yes, I exactly. <laughs>
1: you're like you were right, guys. So. Um, <laughs> So basically, yeah, basically poverty and pride is why
0: I'm still here. It's a wicked combination.
1: <laughs> the wicked combination, yeah. Yeah, so it was tough. We didn't, uh, I didn't have heat in my apartment. The first apartment that I lived in, um, there was, the landlady was this, um, I'm pretty convinced that she was actually a troll or like Baba Yaga or something. <laughs> I don't know that she was actually a person, but uh, she just didn't ever turn the heat on. Um, so sometimes I would wake up in the morning that's in the first winter so was also, of course, miserably cold. And so I'd wake up and I'd be able to see my breath in my apartment and go to sleep in like sweaters. Um, it was very, it's funny now, but it was, it was not funny then.
0: Um, like what the fuck? I mean, like just like quality of life, you know, just like you're,
1: a, yeah, uh, right. Like why, do, yeah. Like why do people like, why would you do that? <laughs> yes. And then like, <laughs> but then the,
0: the other thing too, is that like, you know, like and this I, I can see the positive side of this too, but, um. You know, living in these small apartments, which you don't have any space in New York unless you have right. tons and tons of money. And so, you know, the negatives are obvious. You're you're confined to this small space. It's claustrophobic and the bathroom is like right off the kitchen, <laughs> uh, right? you know, and that kind of stuff. But th- then on the other side, like you get out, it forces you out into the city and you get to, you mix with people and you're, you get out of your place that there's something to, there's something positive to that, I think.
1: Right. Yeah, and I think um, there, and and I think because the moments of being happy in those first years were so hard won. Like I worked harder to be happy in New York than I had ever worked for anything before in my life, and so they were to me so much more precious then um you know portlander have everybody's happy all the time like who cares but
0: but <laughs> it's sort of boring it's sort of boring Everyone's yeah it's like, of
1: boring <laughs> yeah. but here there would be these moments of that were just like sort of. i would be happy and it would be completely transcendent i would feel like i was on drugs or something you
0: know? well no it's funny <laughs> that, it's funny that you say that i have a buddy who moved out to brooklyn a couple of years ago And, uh, you know, he comes out here, I'm out there, and we catch up. And um, he was just out in Los Angeles about a month or two ago, and I was asking him about it. And he's like, you know, he's like, the highs are really high and the lows are really low. And I get that. I mean, I feel like the same could be said about Los Angeles to a degree, but New York, it seems especially so.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, I, it's, I feel bad that we're, I mean, it's so obnoxious Some people who live here are like, oh my God, New York. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's like a Stockholm syndrome. I think you have to keep doing it otherwise. Right. <laughs> yes. Otherwise, there's no point. But um, but yeah, that's been really true
0: for sure. And then like, de- like depressive, like let's talk about some lows. <laughs> um, like when things go bad in New York or like life is working against you or it's just a shitty week and then... It's the weather's bad, and you're freezing, and you know, like, do, do you ever find yourself? Um, I don't know. I guess you already said you you thought about bailing, but like, have you ever had moments where, like, things got like especially dark in New York, or no?
1: Yeah, I mean, I still think about going. I think about going back to Washington. I get super homesick. Because also, you know, where I'm from is is one of the most beautiful places. And I'm from basically the Olympic Peninsula, which is just staggeringly beautiful, um, which is not something that is here. And I go back and I get so homesick. Um, I think my dream is someday to be sort of coastal or to live out there in the summers and and out here in the winters or, or to figure out some way to kind of navigate both of those things. But I'm also... Now I'm going to sound um, like a like a lunatic, but I'm one of those people who actually legitimately believes that you know the apocalypse is coming. Like the apocalypse is coming. Like I don't know how long, how much longer in New York will be livable. Literally, like you know, if the ocean goes, rises a couple of feet. We're we're not going to we're going to have to go somewhere else anyway. So yeah, no,
0: you know that's interesting because that's interesting to hear you say that because I entertain thoughts like that all the time. Like <clears throat> I'll be talking to my wife and I'll be like. You know, I really I really think we need to save up some money. I just want to buy, like... I want to figure out where the weather's going to be halfway decent once the shit really hits the fan with climate change. Uh, by the way, the Pacific Northwest is supposedly... You know, I don't wanna, yeah, I don't
1: want to say that because I don't want people to see me there, but um, <laughs> that, right. that's that's definitely my exit
0: plan. Yeah, it's like, okay, so just like a little plot of land that's like arable so that like she could grow potatoes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah like, I'm going to be out there. Yeah. yeah, just so
0: like we just need a place just so that like, you know, if our, one day our, our daughter is like, you know, it's the apocalypse, she can like go to the place and it'll be safe or whatever. And that's exactly. A, that's a very bleak thought to entertain. But, you know, I don't think that it is um, – Fantastical to think that way, considering the state of the world. Considering, and now things are going to get extremely bleak. <laughs> P.S. But
1: yeah, uh, you think
0: about like, th- like biological weapons. You think about nuclear weapons. You think about Ebola. You think about climate change. It's like something's good. You know, something's got to give. We either got to get our something's
1: abs- got to give. Yeah, and I think the minute you know, thinking about New York, like like if something goes here, the whole like we're really fucked. You right. know, it's not the city is like barely hanging together as it is. So. I definitely think about about going or at least, you know, saving up and, and trying to buy land out, out where I'm from. And I have a, um, I have a couple of writer friends um, who are sort of scattered across the country and we're planning our, you know, our little retirement commune with some pit bulls and shotguns and find some people to grow food for us and have a big old farmhouse out in the woods. And Can I join? You can, yeah, you can come.
0: <laughs> You're like, yeah, sure, yeah.
1: You can build a, you can build a deck. You're like, yeah, if if you can
0: find us, you can be a part of it. Brad. If you can find us, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So growing up on the Olympic Peninsula, I want to hear more about this because um, that's a part of the country that I I want to spend more time in. I've never really I've never been to Seattle. I've never been up to that part of the country. So uh, tell you know, tell me about what it was like growing up there. Was it like running around in the woods or
1: Well, I grew up um, so I grew up a little bit west of Seattle. Uh, in a town called Silverdale, which was very um, pastoral until I was about 10. And then um, just, you know, farmland and really beautiful. And then it started getting developed. And um, basically there's now a strip mall. Um, we were, although we were very excited when we got the first mall, it was like, finally, it's not going to be boring here anymore. Um, which turned out not to be true. I was going to say. And then, yeah. And then I lived, um, I lived, in Port Townsend for a long time, which is, um, way out on the peninsula, which is really beautiful and really tiny. And, um, three months out of the year is the most beautiful place you've ever been. And then the other nine months you can't, you know, the, the, the rain just kind of moves in, but I actually really like that. Um,
0: yeah, I was going to say, cause I feel yeah. like, I like I'm kind of solar powered. I feel like the, the rain would get to me. Does it, but you, you grew up. It's in
1: intense, a- Yeah, it's intense. I mean, it gets dark at four. Um, the sky feels like it's 10 feet overhead and, um, you have to be a certain kind of person to manage that. I think <laughs> and, you, and whatever,
0: whatever it takes, so, you've got it,
1: whatever it takes. I've got it, I guess. Yeah. So I just, you know, make a lot of soup, read a lot of books.
0: That's, uh, yeah, I can get, but I can do that for like a month and then it's like, okay, I'm getting cabin fever. Yeah. So you don't need to be out. You don't need to be outdoors. You can just be like in, inside.
1: Or- and being, I don't mind being outdoors in the rain too. So like, like hiking in the rain is really nice. The the Olympic rainforest, um, which is a little a literal rainforest, is really amazing when it's actually raining as well. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's so beautiful that it's it's
0: really worth it. I gotta check that out. I've seen. I mean, I see pictures of like the you know the forests up there. It just looks gorgeous.
1: Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty unreal.
0: So was it? A, I mean, it was a happy childhood. What like what did your folks do up there?
1: Oh for sure, yeah, my parents um it's funny my parents are are wonderful people, they are extremely conservative, so um which is which is a funny contrast um my mom worked in banking off and on for a long time, um and my dad is a builder, so they're just very um and they're still married, they're very like wonderful upstanding tea party republicans, basically are they tea Party? <laughs> yeah, I think we have, we don't talk about it too much um. But I think that they have have pretty much gone that route. Um, yeah, they were always pretty conservative, but what, they seem to religious be
0: religious conservative.
1: So. Um, my mom is super Catholic, my, yeah. so I grew up I grew up very Catholic. My dad's um, my dad's family is Catholic, but he's not especially
0: religious. Well, see, it's like because I have the same thing, like especially with my dad. My dad is a conservative, um, and I was telling a friend this the other night because just the other day I was talking to my dad and we should, we just shouldn't talk about politics, but like we often yeah. do. It's like this ongoing thing <laughs> and I'm not, a, yeah. I'm not affiliated. Uh, I don't have a party affiliation, but like, I guess I'm more left than right. Um, I, I don't even guess I am, you know, uh, especially in yeah. today's climate. And so my dad and I started having these conversations and my dad's like, you know, your your aunt and uncle were out. We took them to the Nixon library and I'm just like immediately like, <laughs> like this buzzer <laughs> goes off in my head. Cause you know, and, and I'm just like, Oh God, you know? And, and, start debating and it just it becomes like this bickering thing and then i just shut down and then i was talking to a friend of mine and i was like you know what like I, I know my dad loves me a lot like there's no question he's been a great dad um but i don't think he likes me or he wouldn't if i wasn't his son <laughs> you know like he would think i'm a he, <laughs> do you know what i'm saying like when yeah i think the point that i'm trying to make is that it's difficult to not, like, I sometimes wish why well, it would be so much easier if I just had the same politics as my parents and specifically my dad, but I, I almost can't control it. I mean, I think what I think my, I assess the information and make my judgments, you know, and they just happen to be different. But do you ever wish like, God, I wish I was into the tea party. Like it would be so much easier to just hang with my parents and like hate on Obama. And, like you know, like,
1: I think I tend towards the other thing, which the other way around, which is you know I wish I wish my parents would rise up to right. the plight or wake right. up to the plight of the <laughs> people, you know. Right, right. <laughs> it's like come on, you guys. Yes. But yeah, but it, yeah we just uh, we we steer clear of those topics, and and everything goes much better. <laughs>
0: it's so it's so fucked, but it's so weird, you know, because it's like so. Yeah, it's so it, funny. It's so it's so central to who a person is and like their worldview, and I don't know. It just it gets to this thing where. I feel like people pick a team and like myself included, you know, like you, you, somewhere along the line in a person's life, like you form an identity politically. And it usually happens, I think in like, like adolescence, like 18, 19, 20, like early adulthood. And it becomes hard for people to ever switch teams. Like rare is the mind that is supple enough to like, you know, change itself on that, on the that, that score. Right. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Sure
0: so okay so your folks are conservatives uh up in uh, poor townsend and then you you grow up and i mean neither of them sound like artistic people right?
1: no i mean they were very i' I'm an, I'm an only child um and was you know quite spoiled and and told totally i was a genius from a very early age which is a great way to grow up um and they were very invested into te- you know they took me to plays they took me to um we lived really close. Cool. i we lived really close to seattle so we could go to you know cultural things they took me to museums they took me to like the children's symphony so they were very um they were very invested in sort of making sure that i had um access to all of that stuff so you know despite they're conservative but they're not philistines
0: (laughs) (laughs) they like music it's not like footloose yeah
1: yeah 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 yeah. they like uh they, they they like books and stuff so um so I was always – and and I read – I started reading when I was really young, and they were very encouraging of that and always gave me – um, you know, it's funny. They gave me all of these, like, mythology books and, and Grimm's fairy tales, and I don't know if they actually – I think they must not have actually read them because, you know, they were like, oh, mythology, that's safe. And so when I was little, I was reading – you know, the original Grimm's fairy tales are pretty horrifying with lots of, like, people cutting, getting cut into pieces and, like <laughs> – which dances in iron shoes until she catches on fire. And everyone's like always getting, you know, burned alive or tortured or, or caught up or whatever. And so I was reading that when I was like six, like, Oh, okay. (laughs)
0: right." (laughs) Oh my God. But that's Uh, But I think that was formative. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was quite, I mean, those are certainly a lot of my preoccupations now with, with my work. So, it's pretty easy to see where that
0: came from. And then you were a good student. I mean, your parents were. It seems like your parents were working hard to um, make you smart. You know, like, and, and I mean that as a compliment. Like they they took yeah you to things. They had, yeah you, you were their project. You were their only child, so they put a lot into it, and and you did well.
1: Yeah, and they had a really they did a really great job of um, not making it, you know, some sort of creepy like pageant mom type of thing. Like they were, they weren't, it wasn't like I had to be smart. It was just that they gave me a lot of stuff to read and then I turned out to be, so I did well in school. Um, but it was, it was pretty easy. Um, it was not a challenge for me.
0: And then where did you, Um, what happened after high school? Did you go, I mean, it doesn't sound like you ever really rebelled or anything or did you?
1: Uh, yeah, that depends on whether you talk to me or my mom, but, um, (laughs) right. I went to um, I went to college in. uh, I I read the Secret History um, when I was very I had a very impressionable age and um, I I was one of the
0: the Donna Tartt novel
1: the the Donna Tartt one yeah 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 and I thought that's what college was going to be like and I was so I was (laughs) stoked I was like I'm going to go to college I'm going to meet these like these people who like read original Greek and like the fact that they murdered someone is not a big deal because they're like going to be really fascinating and rich. And it's going to be winter all the time and really beautiful. And then, um, I ended up going to public college in Washington. I <laughs> uh, was really, really pissed when I got there. I was which was like, this is not what I, well, like- uh, Western, Western Washington, which is up in Bellingham.
0: <clears throat>
1: okay. So, um, so I actually ended up dropping out of college um and which, did
0: which your parents must have been I, thrilled by.
1: They were not, actually. Yeah, I did. <laughs> they were not thrilled. They were not thrilled at all. Um and then just did a bunch of adventuring for most of my twenties.
0: Um So you never went back?
1: Like, I did go back eventually. I went back when I was um I, I went back right before I moved out here to finish. I only had like a year left. Um why did you drop out? I I ran away with a circus. Um, okay. I met this. I, now, I started, things, now
0: things are getting good. Keep talking. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I started. Um, I started dating this guy who had like a little punk rock circus, and uh, I remember. I think never really occurred to me that I could leave college. I mean, I wasn't. I was bored out of my mind, and I I didn't see the point of it. But it was just what you did, you know, when you were from like a a good middle class family. Like you went to school and you finished. And I I remember really distinctly um, saying something about it. And he was, a little, he was like, "Well, why didn't you quit?" And I was like, "Oh, that's totally an option." It was like somebody had just turned on the light bulb, um, and it was really exciting to me. And um, and he also happened to have this this uh, this kind of very scrappy. Um, you know when you're you know you probably have these kids in Los Angeles, the kids with like all the cardboard signs and the pit bulls and the um sure,
0: yeah well like yeah, yeah yeah
1: it was yeah, it was like that kind of circus, so um I went on I went on the road with his circus for a little while and um it was great it what, was did, what did your parents do?
0: what did your conservative parents did they know about this?
1: They did know about this um I'm kind of surprised that neither one of them had a heart attack uh they did, you know, they 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 did pretty well considering they were not happy about it. But I mean, I don't know what they what they could have done, you know.
0: Yeah, exactly. They, um, so what I mean when you say circus, what do you mean? Like, are you doing like lion taming or like what's what's happening? So we just,
1: we had a we had a school bus and we um, would just drive up. Uh, this is also a very different. Uh, you know, this was a very different era when you could like set things on fire in the street for a while before the the cops showed up. But, uh, we, um, we would roll up into a town and we did different. Um, the boyfriend juggled fire. It was very exciting. Like machete juggling. Um, I had those terrible, you know, those, those chains with the little fireballs on the, I mean, it was, it was was terrible. It was very um, very
0: burning man. It seems very burning,
1: very burning, very embarrassingly burning. Yeah. You know, it was the nineties, but, uh, but it was it was a great time. You, were you guys
0: doing a lot of drugs?
1: Yeah, that
0: was part of it. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay Pacific Northwest, pa, 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 yeah, Pacific, was... a Pacific Northwest, and a school bus. I have to ask. I mean. There was a
1: little bit of that, yeah, for
0: sure. <laughs> okay, and I always have to. I always ask people when I talk to them on this show when it comes to that sort of stuff because you know it, it's well documented, like the like the wayward youth stuff and my misfit uh-huh. youth, but. Do Uh do you ever feel like any of those experiences were really um, integral to who you are now, like both personally and creatively? Did you have any really positive experiences?
1: I mean, I think that whole time was really integral to the person that I am now. Um, It was really... My my whole life just seemed like anything was possible at that point, and I I had all of these friends who were doing um pretty amazing things. They were hitchhiking, and, and especially a lot of female friends who were doing things that were, um you know they were hitchhiking across the country by themselves. They were hopping trains. They would go to Europe for months and just like with no money and like just bum around. And and um and I think you know there's larger obviously as an adult I can look back and say that there's larger issues of of sort of privilege and. And whatever that that support that kind of life but at the same time for me it was really formative um to be doing that instead of you know if i had gone to college i would probably be doing something much less interesting than i am now um which is not to say that everyone everyone who has who who goes the more conventional route and ends up being a boring person. But I think for me personally, that was a really essential experience
0: to, to sort of you needed, becoming the person that I am now. You needed to go wild.
1: I needed to, I needed to go a little wild. Yeah.
0: There's nothing wrong. I, mean, I get that. I mean, I like, yeah, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I read something once that seemed very convincing where it was comparing like, you know, young men going off to war and that experience being formative and crazy and wild and, Um, identity shaping, you know, is not all that dissimilar from people like, you know, joining a circus and dropping acid on a school bus. (laughs) I mean, obviously, obviously there are distinct differences, but, um, you know, the sort of joke that emerges from that parallel or whatever is that, you know, uh, being a hippie for a year and a half in college was my Vietnam, which... Uh, you know, I don't know. I hope that doesn't insult anybody who has actually served in the military or been in an actual theater of war, but do you get it? What I'm saying? Like the craziness of that time, I'm sure when people are in, um, a combat situation as brutal, I mean, what am I even talking about? I'm way out of my league, but, um, do you, do you get it? What I'm saying? Like like the entertainment, inviting, inviting, like a sort of wildness or chaos into your life. Which, you know, if you were to look at it now, you're like, how did I ever do that? Or, or, and sometimes I'm like, you know, I was lucky to get through it because not everybody does. And, um, but back then it's just, like you said, it seemed like anything was possible. And I don't know, I guess not everybody needs that, but some people do.
1: Yeah, it was really important to me. And I think, I don't, do you, you know, the writer Vanessa Vaselka, who's really brilliant. Yeah, yeah, um, I've had her on the show. Oh, great. Oh, I will look that one up. Yeah, she's, she is fabulous. She's like an amazing human being. But she had a really great essay that came out, um, I think, in the American Reader a while ago that um, on sort of the lack of female road narratives and how important those kinds of stories are for for women in particular who don't get, to, you know, on the road, the, the, the women are like negligible characters. Like, we don't get those kinds of stories. Um, and so to actually realize that I could, like that story, that kind of adventure and that kind of self-discovery and that kind of, you know, I did a, I did a lot of really awesome stuff. I rode, a, I rode my bike down the West Coast by myself. I rode my bike across Europe by myself. I did, I drove across the country by myself. I did all of these things that I didn't realize were possible because I hadn't had anyone sort of, you know, there weren't any stories in which, in which that happened.
0: So wait, you, um, rode, you rode your bike down, like all the way down the coast of California?
1: I rode actually. I rode from Washington to Arizona. Yeah, I rode I rode from Washington to California by myself, and then I met um, I met a friend and rode to Arizona from did, San Diego.
0: Like, how long did that take you?
1: Uh, yeah, well, this is a long time. I think it took about three months.
0: And well, then, and you're staying in towns, or you were you just camping, or
1: camping? I was camping? Yeah.
0: Wow, that's that's ballsy. And do you ever get into any trouble or have any like, you know?
1: No, it was amazing. Um, it was amazing. Every pretty much every day, someone would come up to me when I was by myself, and they would say, "What are you doing?" Um, you're going to get murdered here, let me feed you. Like, <laughs> like I ate I ate lunch like pretty much every day from like concerned older people being like, Someone's going to kill you here, have this fabulous meal <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll serve you your last meal. Like yeah, I'll serve you
1: your eat. last meal. So people I like people were so generous, especially because it's it's pretty common um on the west coast, you know, a lot of people do that trip. But as soon as as soon as we started as soon as we went east and started going through the southwest, you know, people were like, What? The fuck are you doing? uh this is the most amazing thing i've ever seen and and people wanted to really be I was really just taken aback every day by how generous um and amazing people were just because of this random you know thing. Um, thing that I was doing, so um, I think
0: it inspires people. I think when you do something yeah. like that, because it's like I feel like all of us. Like I mean, here I am. I'm thinking like, why the fuck did I never ride my bike up and down the West Coast? And I think that all of us um, you still can. I know, I still can. I'll pack the family. You know, like, we'll get a uh, we'll get a tandem and a co- and a kid seat. But um, yeah.
1: I met people who are doing that. I'm not joking.
0: Well, I feel like people love or like a lot of people wish or entertain um, dreams of doing that sort of stuff. And then when you see somebody who's actualizing it, it makes makes you inspired and you want to like you want to help them on their way so that they that you can live vicariously or have a little piece of it or whatever.
1: Yeah, it was, like, the patronus of the collective consciousness of people who
0: were stuck in, like, stifling jobs. Right, right, right. They're like, <laughs> I want to be thinking about you when I'm when I'm in a cubicle. Like, here's a sandwich. Yeah, here's a sandwich, yeah,
1: yeah. Here's a sandwich basically. Yeah.
0: So, okay. Yeah. So, and then it
1: was also... Oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, 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 you finish, because uh, I, I want to, like, transition to Europe. But, like, what were you going to say?
1: Sure. Well, was, was, I think there was also that sense that I realized when I was doing that there was a moment where I had an interaction with someone in a convenience store or something, um, where the guy was, was bringing me up and then he realized what I was doing and then he refused to charge me, but he got sort of angry at me and he was like, you do this now before you are older and you have a house and you have kids and you can't do anything. But like, he was just sort of, you know, it was obvious that he was projecting the fact that he had never gotten to do anything (laughs) on me at the same time that he was, that he was not charging me for my groceries. And, um, And I just remember really distinctly thinking, I don't ever want to be that person. Like, I don't ever want to wake up and look at my life and think, there's no joy here. How did I get here? You know, so that was, it was pretty, it was pretty integral, I think, to the person that I
0: ended up becoming. Did you see the movie Boyhood?
1: I did not, you know, I'm not really that interested in movies about boys. Unless they're set in space, yeah.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Okay, well, it was a good movie. But there's just a like your anti-movies about boys. What? Uh,
1: is it, yeah, I'm just kind of bored. I'm bored with stories about boys in general. No offense. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure you're great. But uh...
0: <laughs> okay, I get it. Okay, so anyway, the point I was going to make is that there's a scene where the mother character who had ki- had a kid when she was like 20 or something. Uh, Mm -hmm. is like, you know, and then like the, the scene takes place when she's like, you know, in her forties and her kids about to graduate from high school. And she's like, I was a child. I was somebody's kid. And then I was somebody's mother. And she's like, basically mourning the fact that she never had that time for herself. And, uh, you know, I feel like that's one of the things like generationally that I feel lucky about because people used to have kids a lot younger, generally speaking, and they never really got time to go have these adventures. And I think for some. And I think especially for a woman, a young woman, um, to do the things that you have done is rare. I, I don't meet too many women who have biked across Europe. I mean, uh, that's pretty cool. And I'm, you know, I want to hear about Europe and I also want to ask you, you know, you mentioned on the road earlier and you mentioned Vanessa Vaselka and like the lack of road, uh, narratives for women. Uh, but like, was on the road, a book that inspired you? Like, like was there a literature that you that you, uh, read and reacted to that helped you decide to, to do this stuff and join the circus and get on the bike?
1: Yeah. I mean, all of the, the circus was a very boy heavy circus. Um, and all of those, all of those guys were really into, um, into the beats. And there was always, even then, I mean, it took me, um, it took me a while to sort of, um, get away from those very male dominated stories. But even then as a as a pretty young person I was like, I think there's maybe more to this. <laughs> you know, like I don't I think it's I think maybe people besides boys can, can do this stuff. So in some ways it was sort of I was sort of inspired by those stories, but I wanted to be Jack Kerouac, you know, I didn't want to be um, I didn't want to be Jack Kerouac's girlfriend.
0: What I Jacqueline Kerouac.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and actually, um, Joyce Johnson has a really amazing memoir, um, which ta- is sort I ta- of marketed.
0: I talked to her on the show about that. Book.
1: Yeah, that is a fantastic book. It's yeah. beautiful, I and mean, yeah. it's heartbreaking, and it it's so beautiful. And and I think that that is probably the best book I have ever read about being a woman trying to prove yourself in um i or to be one of the boys in the, in in a culture in which you're just never going to be um, a person really uh, you know other than a, someone other than a girlfriend so um and it was much i was much later that i found that book but i really it, I, I it resonated so much is with me it, because is of it, the the, the voices sort of all
0: is it called the voices all is that the one or uh, thinking I'm thinking
1: her? of Minor Characters
0: okay yeah 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 that's the one no I talked to her when the voice is all published but yeah Minor Characters is the one she published in like the 80s or whatever
1: yeah yeah and I just found that book a few years ago, and it was it was so um it was basically like she had taken it all out of my heart and then done a significantly better job than I would ever have done of writing it,
0: so <laughs> and you, turned it into a book. you feel like the gender disparity that she experienced with the beats was still alive and well, and like your experience oh of, for
1: sure yeah,
0: yeah.
1: You, I mean, I think it was you know the, it was it was a little it was better in the sense that you know the gender roles that she was fighting out of were so restricted. And, and that was really like the first generation of, of American women who were doing anything like that. And so we had, you know, I had some, you know, I had like the sixties and, and, and some other models before me where it wasn't like completely crazy what I was trying to do. But yeah, I think that for sure that gender di- dynamic hadn't changed much.
0: So are you, are you consider, do you identify as a feminist? Oh, sure. Yeah. Big time. What does it mean?
1: Oh, of course you're going to ask that.
0: Um, well, I, I, I wrestle with this. I wrestle with this because, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's such a tricky thing to like talk about, and I, I, I kind of I watch it unfold. You know, mostly online right. and social media, and it's like, what is happening here? And like, I want right. to be supportive, right. but then sometimes I feel annoyed, and then I feel bad about being annoyed. You know, it's like that whole thing.
1: Right. I stay away from a lot of online discussions of feminism because. I I think they can be not super productive. There are are some really amazing people. What I I do more of is sort of read work that people are putting online um, and read essays. And I'm really interested in sort of um, intersectional feminism, so looking at ways that race and class um, and ability and um, all these other things also Kind of come into play, not just gender, but um, basically, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in, in sort of a liberatory politics in general.
0: And and you're just anti-boy uh, movies and anti-boy narratives, anti,
1: anti-men, just
0: anti-men. You know, Are, are so you anti boring?
1: So boring. <laughs> <laughs>
0: are you? But are you anti-men? Like, are you angry at men?
1: <laughs> um, I'm not angry. I'm just I'm just bored. You know, I'll take them on a case by case basis. Um.
0: Or do you? do you, I mean, are you, are you interested in men like, uh, romantically? Like do you date men or are you?
1: I'm equal opportunity employer, I would say, but I have a, um, I have a gentleman friend now who's, you know, he's passed the exacting series of, <laughs> <I was gonna laughs> of say, examination. I want to meet this guy. <laughs> uh, well, see, but you know, here's the thing.
0: Here's like one of the things, cause like, I, I think like, and this isn't necessarily flattering to say, but I'm going to say, it cause it's the truth is that. I kind of shut down. I get very overwhelmed by, like, social injustice and, like, what to do about it.
1: Sure, yeah.
0: Everyone's got a grievance. And so, like, I can... Sure. Like, the the constant, like, this is an injustice and I'm angry about this. And and I just go, oh, you know, like, I don't know what to do with all this. And I think about, like, you know, to use, like, uh, feminist concerns or, you know, um, misogyny or, you know, all the different ways it can manifest. Uh, I, I start to think to myself, okay, so... But we've made improvements. Like, we're getting better and not worse at least like incrementally uh and i think to the future and i'm like when will it be okay like what has yeah. to, what, what, what has to happen total
1: revolution armed revolution <laughs> i mean you know it's like it's
0: never gonna it's, yeah. not in my lifetime it's not gonna be i mean i would be very surprised like when is everyone gonna go okay game over like the good side won. yeah like but what has to happen you know like
1: I guess that would be such an exciting day. Oh my God, the game over day. It's like, no, it's chill. We're all good. We're, we have, yeah, everyone's just, got what they need. We've got equal rights for everybody. We're all like eating, we're all housed, we're all safe. Yeah,
0: that's all I, am such an idealist. And I think maybe just Monsanto
1: like, is gone. No yeah. more Monsanto. Yeah, we're, it's gonna, that's gonna be an awesome awesome day i'm excited about that day too
0: (laughs) that's but isn't that kind of like intellectually lazy of me like i'm just like oh just push fast forward to like the, the the good ending just give me the good ending so i don't have to like it gets over bad news gets overwhelming
1: oh for sure bad news i mean despair is a really hard thing to learn to live with um and it's very hard not to you know look at any, any, really any part of the world or any things that are happening in any part of the world right now and not come away with a, a pretty profound sense of despair, especially, you know, the summer was pretty,
0: this summer was especially um, depressing. Was it not
1: especially awful?
0: Yeah. Oh, so, like everything was just shitty. And then Joan Rivers died and Robin, I was just like, okay, that was to me kind of like the exclamation point, like Joan Rivers and Robin Williams would just seemed to cruel, you know? Um, <laughs> n- not, not that those are like, not that those are like the yeah. most awful things that happened, but just as like, uh, you know, shitty flourishes or – do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. It just, yeah. like, it just it's like, it. underscored like the overall like geopolitical bummer that seems to be happening everywhere. <laughs> geopolitical bummer. <laughs> do you know what, the world yeah. – just meaning the world is shitty and people are dying in awful ways and bad people yeah. are winning and, you know
1: bad people are winning so are you are
0: you an optimistic person do you look to the future with optimism no no
1: i'm not at all so i think um i think which is which is kind of interesting i think because i was figuring out how to be hopeful which seems delusional in the face of of not being i mean i'm not an optimist but i think i'm a hopeful person which i know it sounds um, contradictory, but it is sort of how I get through.
0: Yeah. I can get down with that. I think, I think that's kind of how I am. I'm also like an idealist. Uh, I, I have this, like this tendency to create like fantasy world, <laughs> fantasy worlds in my mind yeah. and believe that they can come true. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um, not necessarily always helpful to the cause, but you know, I, I think it's, it's what what's what I have to do to cope. So, Um, but yeah, you, you're able to be hopeful and like, what are you hopeful about? I mean, you just hope that like, you know, we'll make a little progress in my lifetime and eventually like 3000 years from now, maybe, or.
1: I'm hopeful about, I guess, sort of individual acts of compassion and the fact that pretty much everywhere throughout human history, no matter how bad things have gotten, there have always been people who have chosen compassion and, and. Decency, even you know when it cost them their lives, or when it was not the easiest choice, or, or whatever. So, those are those are the stories that I kind of um, use to to uh, to get me through. And then you know, just like not looking at the internet for long periods of time if I can't deal with it is, is also really helpful. Yeah. Help us all. Just <laughs> so can... sort of giving your yeah, giving giving yourself the freedom. I think to. Um, I mean, obviously it's a privilege to be able to like turn it off and not, and then have your life not be affected. Um, but I think sometimes that's an okay luxury to, to capitalize on if that's what you need to do.
0: And so where, like, where are you spiritually? We talked about your parents, you know, you're obviously, you've strayed from your mother's Catholicism, I would imagine, but like in terms of coping and dealing with like the horrors of the world and the difficulties, uh, like, do you have anything, uh, that you could define
1: yeah, I mean I think I ended up sort of pagan really um which is a very natural um I think for people who grew up catholic
0: is
1: <laughs> they either stay very catholic or they they turn into witches but um
0: Yeah, I grew up or catholic. go back
1: to being witches. yeah. <laughs> so um and I also my third book is is um the main character of my third book is a teenage girl who wants to be an astronomer and I did um a ton of research um for for this book. I read um this book after book about cosmology and sort of the history of the universe and different theories of the universe and there's something that it's so beautiful um and so inspiring about that not only not only that that order exists but also I don't did you see the movie particle fever?
0: Uh no, uh-uh.
1: It's a uh, um it's about the discovery of the Higgs boson um which even after like reading multiple articles about and watching the movie, I still don't really understand what the guy <laughs> is. But <laughs> the, the discovery God, it's is the extremely God, important. It's the God particle. <laughs> it's the God, yeah. They, no, they don't. You're not, they're, they not like that. You're not oh, right. That. Like, but uh, but, um, but the movie is amazing, and it's and it's about the physicists and the, and um, sort of their you know intermeshing quarrels and um, and dreams and all of this all of this stuff. And there's this really beautiful part at the end where one of these guys is talking about how we're the only species we're the only species that that asks these questions and then solves them and we make art and we make symphonies and we make all of these, you know, as, as sort of awful as we are, we still continually insist on making things that are very beautiful and asking these huge questions. And, um, and I think that is, for me in itself, that's a kind of spirituality too, which I think, you know, a scientist would probably be horrified. Um, no,
0: I think so. I get you know that. Me I say, get that. But Just looking up at the sky, I mean, it sounds hokey, but... Uh,
1: no, yeah, it's, I mean, that's some...
0: That's something. That's
1: some pretty awesome stuff up there.
0: So, okay, know? so and you, the witch stuff, like you were joking, like you're not into witchcraft or anything like that with paganism.
1: I mean, I did. I was very, you know, again, I grew up in the 90s. Um, I was very into Wicca as a, um, I think, everyone. That was sort of what you <laughs> did and in, the, in the 90s. I was a very goth teenager. Um and so that some of that carried over, you know. I mean, I'm not super serious about it, but you know, I'll, light, I'll do a little light of candles and think my thoughts if I want. Yeah. If I want something
0: to happen. And the so. and the book that you were researching and, and reading all about uh, astronomy and the Higgs boson and everything was about a girl.
1: Like, yes, that's about a girl. That's
0: and that com- and that comes out next summer. That comes out next summer. Okay. So, yeah, let's talk about uh, your writing career, like professional publication, you know, because we've talked about the move to New York. And um, obviously there was the literary ambition that uh, accompanied that. But, like, what was the process like for you going from arriving in New York to seeing yourself in print?
1: Well, I had published uh, some essays before I came out here. And I had always, I mean, I've been writing pretty much nonstop since I was a kid. Um, but when I, um, I had sort of decided when I came out here that I wasn't actually going to write a book, um, that I just didn't have it in me. And then, um, I
0: started, starving. Was... I started starving. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, well, well, I finally did actually get a job working for a literary agent, um, which is extremely disillusioning, um, and quickly disabused me of any notion that I had that I was ever making <laughs> <getting> money <ready. Right. laughs> as, as a writer. Uh, once you see how the sausage is made, it, it can be a little disheartening. But, um, but I, I, there was this point where, um, I had, I had been writing, so I started a blog, um, anonymously while I was, while I was working for her, but eventually I, when I stopped working for her, I, um, Revealed, you know, as my own, and I, I still have them
0: publishing it's writing there. The, reje- um, the rejectionist.
1: The rejectionist, yeah.
0: The rejectionist um,
1: The rejectionist com, and so I had been writing a lot of essays and sort of doing like long form nonfiction and personal nonfiction, and I was thinking maybe that was how I was going to kind of supplement my income. Um, and then I was going through um, some old journals and thought, well, maybe I'll write a memoir more, um, and I did, and that was the first whole book. That I wrote, um, it. I had gotten an agent who had actually contacted me through the blog. She sent it out. No one wanted it. Um, it did not sell uh, for good reason, um, and thankfully. But once I had written a book, I realized that I could write another book. That you know that was actually something that I could do, um, and so then I wrote. After that, I wrote the first book, which uh, which is the book that became All Our Pretty Songs. And then the
0: rest is, is history. Did it sell fairly easily? I mean, you had the same agent. That
1: book sold. Uh, that book sold really quickly. Yeah, which was a great shock to me. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, a very wonderful surprise. Yeah. Someone, someone wants this thing. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Because the first book had been. I can't remember how long it was on submission for. I think it was. It, it was at least a year and possibly longer and it was you know it's, it's so torturous I mean you, you get these like oh this editor's maybe kind of interested yeah. probably and then you like never hear from that person again and it was very um, you know it was it was a lot of ups and downs So it was very shocking to me when,
0: okay yeah. so, and so when like you fun. you alluded to how the sausage is made and you worked at, at a, as an assistant at a literary agency mm-hmm. so when we talk mm-hmm. I, I think about this I've talked about this on the program with uh, different authors but you know, certain books do get the ride, and they certain sure. auth, certain authors do make really good money, and it happens. Sure. It happens for some people. Uh, do, you sure. have any, do you have any idea why?
1: I don't know if anyone in publishing has any idea why. You know, I think um, sometimes you can tell. Like sometimes you you read a, a book that gets a tremendous amount of money thrown at it, and it's obvious. You know, it's like a very page turny or very commercially minded, which is. Which is a skill that I have so much admiration for, um, and tragically I don't think possess. But um, <laughs> uh, we'll see. Maybe, yeah. uh, maybe one of these days see. I'll write something like really commercial. But I've tried. I <laughs> want to. I want to read.
0: Funny. I want to read about all these crazy. <laughs> I want to read about the circus and the adventures.
1: Yeah, um, I did actually write an essay about the the circus for um, for glamour, which you can look up online. Um, which is a pretty pretty funny. I did not choose. I will. I did not choose the accompanying picture. Um, or the title, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, I think that publishing commercial publishing, um, which is a very different beast obviously than, than smaller independent publishing. Um, I think in a lot of ways, it's a lot of the people making decisions about where money goes are very reactive and not necessarily, um, you know, there's a lot of really brilliant, awesome people working in publishing, but I, I feel like sometimes the people making decisions about where the money goes only know they can only really see things that have already made money, and then be like, "Well, something else like that," you know. So, so that can be. Um,
0: sounds I like think sounds like the, sounds like movies and television.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's, I think it's probably pretty. I don't know that much about the film industry, but I'm sure it's fairly analogous, and and,
0: and well, that's why well, it's that's depressing. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I'm like, I just want it to be different. So, okay. so yeah. So when you uh, – but you've done well. You've published two books. you got another coming out next summer.
1: Yeah, another coming out, yeah. And I really – like. I mean, I love – my editor is amazing. She's really um, – especially, I think, having worked in publishing has made me really appreciative of the, the positive experiences I've had. Because
0: yeah. Because
1: you see, like, all the, you know, the horrible things that, that happened, too. So she's fantastic. I I really – have been so lucky to to um to get to work with her.
0: And you and like you you are categorized as YA. You bristle at that? You I mean
1: Yeah, I think um that's just a huge can of worms. Um it's challenging because it, it automatically pigeonholes your especially if you're a female writer, it pigeonholes your work in, in ways that can be really frustrating and and sort of impossible to overcome. Um So that, and I don't think, I mean, I didn't, I didn't set out to write necessarily for teenage. I I just wrote it, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I I don't, I don't think about audience at all while I'm writing, um, for better or for worse. And and there's a gender
0: and there's a gender thing with YA too. Like it's not only like the YA label and what that does, like in terms of how a book is perceived, but it's also YA because your protagonist is female and you're a female.
1: Yeah. There's yeah that. I think because you know if you're writing about teenage girls you're pretty not always i mean if you're writing like sort of a waspy coming of age story set on Long Island in which the teen female protagonist has an affair with someone her father's age, then you can probably get it published as adult but <laughs> um but otherwise you're pretty you're pretty much gonna get published as you're an adult um uh if you're if your main characters are teenage girls, which is yeah which is it's it can be um it can be challenging to overcome.
0: The but, but that's where the impossible. money is. The YA, I always hear like YA, they're actually paying advances and you can, you know, people are buying books. But um, but then for somebody who has literary ambition, you know, or whatever and wants to be taken seriously as a literary author, maybe that's where the frustration comes or no?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't, I think that there is a lot more opportunity now to publish really weird and, and sort of um, challenging stuff, and still have it come out his way, so that's pretty um, pretty exciting. Um, I don't worry too much about like I mean I don't think you know I, I'm I'm probably not ever going to be in the Paris Review, and I think that's that's pretty much okay. But uh, <laughs> but. Uh, it, it would be nice to know that people, I mean, you hear people say like, well, I mean, God bless, you uh, know, Scott had that um, big essay that just came, which I I couldn't even finish. Um, I wish I will forgive because he has written um, that whole series of Transformers movies reviews, which are some of the most incredible pieces of cinematic criticism of our time, I think. But he, you know, had this whole thing that it was just about how, you know, adults shouldn't read kids books and oh, we're right, all right, getting right. stupider and, 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 uh, and. So it can be really frustrating to be like, well, you know, that's 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 me actually. I'm writing
0: those, and I'm <laughs> yeah. pretty smart. You're so like, Yeah, you're like thanks asshole.
1: <laughs> thanks asshole. I worked pretty and, hard on and that. And by thing. the
0: way, by the way, AO Scott's a man, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's the yeah, pa- see, a, it's like, a
0: patriarchy. It's the patriarchy.
1: <laughs> the patriarchy. Once his again, it's like on my head. <laughs> yeah,
0: right.
1: <laughs> he came over to my apartment <laughs> and just like pushed me down. <laughs>
0: what a dick. <laughs> it was kind of weird. Yeah.
1: But um but yeah so those 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 assumptions are more frustrating to me than necessarily like i don't really care about like you know the new yorker but um but it's frustrating to have so many people sort of stereotyping or, or pigeonholing your work yeah um because of ideas like that about what is serious and what's not serious
0: and then what about guillotine the chapbook series that you publish and edit
1: um, Guillotine is a nonfiction. Um, although next year actually I'm going to be doing my first fiction, um, which I'm really excited about. Uh, and so it's a series of long-form essays that are published as physical chapbooks. Um, and I let her press the covers. My friend does the design, and I print the covers and hand-sew them and... Um, and that's been a really fun project. I've gotten to publish some really—I ima- mean, actually, I've gotten to publish Vanessa um, oh. Selka, which is which is really cool. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. So you did a conversation with uh, Lydia Yuknovich about um, about women and anger and violence in fiction. That's
0: that's oh. pretty amazing. Yeah, those guys are great. Um, those guys are great. Oh my
1: god, they're brilliant. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. And the, I like the name Guillotine. It's very like
1: Guillotine. Yeah,
0: you know. You know, it's French. It's cultured. It's violent. It's French.
1: It's cultured. <laughs> violent. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, French. Cultured. Violent. That could be our tagline. Uh, yeah. And I, <laughs> I, like I mean, that. I'm
0: just I'm kind of working my way through your bio, but I want to ask you about this stuff before we go. But like, you're the media. Sure. You're the media coordinator for the Doula Project. Are you a doula? I
1: am a um, yeah. So I'm a, that's a volunteer. Um, I'm an abortion doula. Um, so <laughs> that is another thing I don't talk about with my mom
0: (laughs) (laughs) mom if you're listening
1: (laughs) so um the doula project is a we do full spectrum doula support so basically um you know supporting pregnant people across the spectrum of choice regardless of whether they're they're choosing to adopt or to parent or to um terminate their pregnancy so um it's pretty awesome it's really a lot of the doulas do both births And abortion work but
0: um so you're a doula for people who are having abortions yes so like some i mean the traumatic experience and like you're with the woman in the room and you're talking her through it and helping her cope or whatever yeah i mean it's
1: it really depends on the person some people for some people it's a really really difficult experience and for some people it's not but basically my job is to sort of love people unconditionally in five to ten minute increments which is an awesome job to have. Um, so I'm just in the room while the procedure is happening with the, um, with the patient and yeah, whatever, whatever that person needs is my, is
0: my job. Well, that's admirable. I mean, just like to volunteer and to be with somebody at a difficult moment or, or I guess a not difficult moment as it were, depending on the situation, but uh, you know, all that stuff's tricky for me. Like, I, I mean, i like I said, I'm kind of an idealist and I'm sensitive. I was just having dinner with a friend of mine, uh, female, we were talking about this and, uh, like abort, like abortion. Uh, I'm pro-choice, but yet at the same time, like late-term abortion, like totally horrifies me. Uh, sure,
1: I mean it's challenging
0: for. Oh, like I can't. I think like, of- like I mean because like here's that. Like I was I was reading something and it was like you know a lot of women are who are who are underprivileged are saving up to to pay for uh, to terminate the pregnancy. They can't afford it, and so that's why the pregnancy right. gets further down the line. Right, uh, which I had never considered. You know, I was always like, "Why? Right. Are you, like these women don't know they're pregnant. Like, get your abortion early if you're going to get one." Right. Um, and I guess there are differing reasons, and and certainly if the life of the mother is threatened, like later in the in the pregnancy, then you do, you know. But I'm just, I, I have a really hard time stomaching, um, like, sure. no pun intended, like abortion past like first trimester. It's like just you know, if you're going to do it, do it early, and it, and if you can't afford it, there should be some sort of fund. Like, be, we should. You know what I'm saying? People should just be able to get. Oh one.
1: sure, yeah, no, we've been trying to. Yeah, um, I think it, well, you know, and another piece of that is that oftentimes later-term abortions are um, people who are wanted pregnancies, but the fetus has developed some kind of lethal abnormality where um, it, it's basically not viable outside of the womb. So that can be even well, sure, that's you know, uh, all of these procedures can be really devastating for people. But the the reality is is that you know nobody nobody is like, ah, I think I'm just going to wait until 24 weeks to have, because right. it's, it's you know, at that point it's it's pretty, I mean, it's, yes, it's very, it's challenging and it's really difficult to, and, and to think about and it's Oof. not, it's messy. It's, it's very, it's very complicated and, and messy. And I think in, in our work, we get to acknowledge, um, you know, I think, a lot of, of even pro-choice rhetoric is very can be sort of dismissive of the fact that oftentimes it is an incredibly difficult and painful decision for people, and and that doesn't mean it's the wrong decision. It just means that it's you know sometimes there are no good decisions. Right. So right. Um, being able to support someone in that moment is very powerful sure. and very um, and yeah. Well, it's a, It's kind of an honor I guess
0: to to be able to do that well, kudos to you for doing that work that's awesome and and uh before I let you go, I just want to ask you uh you know i've kind of i feel like we've we've covered a a wide range of stuff we've kind of traveled the spectrum sure yeah when you're when you hear, you're like, yes, please stop the interrogation no, no, <laughs> <this is fine. laughs> uh, so but you know when you look forward um you know you're kind of a realist about publishing and you have mm-hmm. um you know, I think you have a pretty clear-eyed view of what the odds would be. But like, when you look forward, like twenty years from now, like, what do you like? What do you hope for? Like, you hoping that you're, uh, you know, fabulously successful author living on your post-apocalyptic compound on the Olympic Peninsula? Is that-
1: <laughs> I mean, that would be awesome. But really, you know, my life, my life is pretty amazing. I um, I get to write the books that I want to write. Um, I'm making enough money doing other stuff to live on. I have really amazing people in my life. So if I get to just keep doing what I'm doing, that would be, that would be in and of itself pretty incredible. But yeah, you know, the high bar would, would be a billionaire on my, <laughs> on a... my post-apocalyptic
0: <laughs> Just twelve pit bulls and a shotgun, be awesome.
1: Twelve pit bulls and a shotgun.
0: <laughs> well, I will keep my fingers crossed for you, Sarah. <laughs>
1: thank you. May it, a, may it
0: be a big, a big litter of ferocious. You can
1: come over for dinner. You'll be the, you'll be the first man invited to dinner. <laughs> yeah, no.
0: Or actually, no. I'll be the dinner. My pit bulls will eat you.
1: <laughs> you'll be <the> dinner, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, it's been exactly. such, fun. it's been such fun uh, talking with you. Yeah, Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. And, and
0: best of luck when uh, about a girl comes out next summer.
1: Thank
0: you so much. Okay. Uh, there you go. That's Sarah McCary. Her next book about a girl due out next summer, summer of 2015. Is it already 2015 almost? Check out Sarah's website and uh, blog. It's therejectionist.com. And then follow her on Twitter. Uh, her handle over there is at therejectionist. Thanks uh, to Kill Rock Stars for all the great music, including the music you're hearing right now. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to get the app. This program, this podcast, has its own official app. It's the best way to listen. The app is free, it's available where apps are available. Uh, you get that app on your device. The most recent 50 shows are there available for free. You can listen uh, with Wi Fi. You can listen offline. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can also sign up for premium and access the full archives right there within the app. It's a great deal, and uh, it's a great way to support the program. If you uh, if you like it, it's a nice way to uh, to show your support. If you want to email me, the uh, address once again is letters at other ppl I love hearing from you guys. It gives me material. You can uh, tell me what you think of the show. You can tell me a story from your life. You can write me a poem. <laughs> Whatever. celebrate me as if I were uh, Derek Jeter, the Derek Jeter of podcasting, that motherfucker. <laughs> uh, Derek, if you're listening, it's nothing personal. You're just a freak. I don't know how to process you. And then, you know, the Clay Shirky thing, I'm already anticipating angry emails from people who actually know what they think. I never know what I think. That's what I think. And I'm sure if you write me a a passionate email deriding Amazon, I'll be back on the I hate Amazon wagon immediately. I just want justice. I want justice for writers. Please remember that Andre Gide died of a disease of the lungs and that Robert Burns had nine illegitimate children. That's it for now. I've said my piece. Thanks to Sarah McCary. Great guest. Go get her uh, books. Go check out her stuff, and uh, I'll be back soon. I shall return. You know that by now. I like this song. It's a good song. It's sort of a uh, what is that? A military military snare drum. <laughs> Talking about music is really hard. It's almost a. It's almost it maybe it might even be worse than talking about literature. Nothing's worse than two two people trying to talk about like a song. Just listen to the song. Don't tell me about the the jam. <laughs> it's always a disaster. I've tried it before. I mean, you know, it comes up sometimes. It never ends well. Like, you know, certain things, you talk about them, you sound like an asshole. Inevitably. Music is one of them. Let's just listen. I should probably end the show. I understand that. I just don't want to leave. I like being here. And I want to extend this experience as long as possible. (laughs)